And so then it goes back into the DNA is the book of life. And so then he says, well, this is a Yeah. Right. 
morning. Good to see you all here this morning. I'll start with a couple that are not in your bulletin. I stole this off the board because I didn't see it in the bulletin. Christmas dinner, uh, Christmas banquet at Sports Creek. This is the sign-up sheet, and that will be Friday, December the 1st, 6 p.m., and the cost is $12 each. So I'll put that back if I can remember and make sure sign up your name and how many in your group. Also, an invitation that we received. Please join us for the young 80th birthday celebration of Carol Rose Atwood. And that's Saturday, December the 16th. 2017 Metamora Masonic Lodge. That's right downtown. Uh, and that is a lunch and dessert reception from 12 to 2 p.m. Cards are welcome, no gifts, and I'll also post this. So Carol's 80th birthday, that's Saturday, the, the, December the 16th. I don't, isn't she a Christmas baby? That's not, that's not her birthday, she's a, she's a 25th. But anyways, the, the gathering is on Saturday the 16th. So put that on your schedule and I'll get those back both posted. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24. Tonight, continuing in the study of John, we're, we'll be in the uh, first part of chapter 16. Choir rehearsal at 5. The new co-ed Bible study will be at the Stiff's home on the 17th. That's this coming Friday, if I'm not mistaken, 6 p.m. And they're going to be starting the apologetic study with Bob Duco's Top 10 Proofs. Men's Bible study Tuesday, 10 a.m. at the McLeods. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. And you'll see there that we have mission pledges that exceed $11,000. So that's a, that's a praise um, for that. I think that exceeds kind of what we've done in the past, doesn't it? I think we've... we've no, it's about $1,000 more. Yeah, we've been, we've been at about $10,000 for about as long as I can remember. So, great. Uh, mission committee. You have a meeting to figure out what to do with all that, what, that money. <laughs> no, I, I don't know what the meeting's for, but you're supposed to be here at 6.15 on Wednesday. Acts and Facts and Free Grace Broadcaster are also here. Make use of those. Those are on the foyer table. All right. What have I missed? Anything? If I've not missed anything, then our scripture for meditation is a responsive reading. And that is 826 in the Trinity, red. That's Psalm 112. Stand with me and we'll read together. Praise the Lord. Bless the man who fears the Lord, finds great delight in his commandments. 
His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Good will come to Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. He will have no fear of enemies. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. I'm sorry, I lost my place. It's, yeah. Thank you very much. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. He has scattered the rod and his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His glory will be lifted high and The wicked man will see and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to that the Lord would bless the reading of his word. If you'll remain standing, we'll open our service with prayer. Dale, can you open for us this morning? Certainly. Our God and our Father, we are so thankful and for your word. And uh, we, you brought us out today, gathered in, in your name. We ask that you be with us. He was the pastor as he brings the message. Dear Lord, you know each and every one of us minister to us in your will. And uh, thank you for your grace and mercy on our souls. Amen. Remain standing. Good morning. Take your brown hymnal and turn to number 283, 283 in the brown hymnal.
right away. I got you, Rachel. All right, um, favorite hymn, Rachel, and the reason? <coughs> 479 in the brown. 479 in the brown. And do you have a, um, a reason for picking this hymn this morning? I used to listen to it a lot on the way home from church. It's become one of my favorites. So, I can find it. There it is. Onward Christian Singers. Okay. Thank you. 
Our scripture reading will be in Ecclesiastes. The second chapter, we'll be reading verses 12 through 26, and that's page 1036 in the Blue Bible. If you'll stand with us, we'll read together. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And when I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this, is, this also is vanity. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. I hated all of my toil in which... I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave, leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. There is also vanity. So I have turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This, is, this also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a, is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For who apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment? <clears throat> For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Take your brown hymnal one more time and turn to page 274, 274 in the brown.
Our scripture text this morning is taken from the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll be looking at chapter 2. Our last message in this series, Believers Under Trial, dealt with the hurt of betrayal. We profiled the life of David during the time of Absalom's rebellion and attempted coup. Absalom had hired away from David Ahithophel, David's foremost advisor. We're told in scripture that both David and Absalom revered Ahithophel's counsel, and let me read it for you, like that of one who inquires of God. Wow, think about that. His counsel was that good, that insightful. So David was devastated. I mean, he lost his chief advisor over to his son, who was, like I said, trying to do a coup, kill dad and take over the kingdom. It was his only resource. And so what could he do? He asked God to frustrate Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom. This God did in the person of Hushai. David's friend, he feigned allegiance to Absalom, but he used his influence to negate Ahithophel's good advice and to defeat Absalom and his armies of the northern kingdom. So there was this other advisor, Ahithophel. No one listened to Ahithophel except to think of him as the messages from God. So David prayed, well, what about Hushai? And God used Hushai to say something that was more acceptable to the people than Ahithophel's counsel, and he went home and hanged himself. He was so disgraced. He talked about then understanding betrayal because that's what the lesson was about. Betrayal is painful because it involves those who claim to be our friends. It's painful because it sacrifices people for lesser things, sometimes for money. In the case of Judas, you remember, 30 pieces of silver. It's painful because it has spiritual repercussions. Betrayal of a believer is to set oneself against God, but people do that. And betrayal is hurtful, we learn, because It desires to become the rule. Sad to say, Jesus says in the latter days, betrayal will be found in our own families. Fathers will betray their children. Children will betray their parents. And on and on it goes. Because there's no spiritual loyalty to God. Well, today we want to talk about hurting fathers. I had done a message earlier about hurting mothers. Today I want to talk about hurting fathers. And I'm going to use Solomon as our template to see, you might think his life was just honky-dory, wonderful. Well, you'll learn today that all that glitters is not gold. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the life of Solomon that teaches us some hurtful things, also some wonderful things. So I pray that you'll do both to show us what it's like to be a man trusting his own wisdom and a man then that trusts God. I pray that you will help us to see the difference. Bless the truth of the scriptures to our hearts. Save whom you will. Speak to our hearts in conviction. 
For us as who are believers, may we be encouraged, challenged, even chastened by your word. We pray this firstly for your glory, but secondly for our good in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking today at the subject, Hurting Fathers. And you'll notice from your bulletin outline, I want to talk firstly about Solomon as the wise man. The book of Ecclesiastes is a journal written by Solomon in which he posts the various adventures that he experienced in his quest to find the meaning of life and living. Because he was king over a vast empire and wealthy beyond imagination, there was little to hinder Solomon in his research. To answer his questions required wisdom and know-how, But you know, Solomon had these things. We know that because in 1 Kings 4, 29 and following, we read, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt, He was wiser than any other man, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls, so he was into botany. He also taught about animals, so he was into zoology. And birds, I'm still reading scripture, ornithology, reptiles and fish, ichthology. <laughs> Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. 1 Kings 4, verse 29 and following. The point, he did not simply study these disciplines, he lectured on them. We would say in, his, in our day, he was a professor with multiple PhDs. Multiple PhDs. Secondly, it takes money, and I would say lots of money, to carry on the investigative research upon which Solomon embarked. In our day, the university studies in various disciplines often involve federal or private foundation funding that numbers into the millions and millions of dollars. That's in our day. People don't do these studies on their own penny. But again, Solomon had money. He had money to burn. Let me read it for you. God said to Solomon, since this is your heart's desire, and you've not asked for wealth, and you have not asked for honor, I will give you But you've asked for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I have made you king. Therefore, wisdom and knowledge will be given to you. And I will also give you wealth, riches, and honor, such as no king has had before you and no one will have after you. 2 Chronicles 1, verse 11 and 12. That's a sweeping promise. I'm going to give you all the wisdom that you need. And on top of that, since you haven't asked for money, I'm going to give you money. Tons of money. Well, how rich is rich? Let me read it for you. 1 Kings 10, 
All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram, that was his buddy. Once every three years, the fleet returned carrying gold, silver, ivory, apes, baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone came. Who came, they brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices, horses, mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities. Can you imagine building a city just to, keep, house your, to house your chariots? And also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. And cedar as plentiful as sycamore figs in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. 1 Kings 10, 21 and following. Thousands of chariots, thousands of horses. The man was not a pauper. So I want you to think about this. Solomon had both the wisdom and the wherewithal in terms of financial resources to probe, to investigate, to analyze, and come to a reasonable conclusion on whatever subject matter suited his fancy. He was a one-man, lusciously funded research center. And what a mind he must have had. I think maybe photographic, I don't know that, doesn't say it in the scripture. But whatever he was able to study, he knew. And he was able to teach others. Now, secondly, the book of Ecclesiastes is the result of his research and conclusions. That's what the book is about. I would say it this way, it's like his... Um, it's like his doctoral thesis in print for all of us to read and to learn from. But unlike most doctoral writings, his thesis covers multiple disciplines, not just one. He's at the end of his life. He is reviewing for us what his money permitted him to investigate and what his wisdom permitted him to analyze accurately and come to some kind of biblical conclusion. There is no other book in all of literature that can boast this kind of scope and thoroughness. And what's he doing in Ecclesiastes? Well, he's just giving, now get it now, he's just giving us his conclusions. He's not giving us all the investigative data. He's just giving us the end conclusions of his study, where his journey has taken him. There is also this added dimension that cannot be ignored. Solomon's analysis of life is God-given. Here's his words in 1 Kings 4.29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding 
as measureless as the sand on the seashore. 1 Kings 4, verse 29. That expression, as the sand on the seashore, is used throughout the Old Testament. It's God's way of saying, you can't count it. <laughs> you ever try to count the sand on the seashore? It's innumerable. And that's the point God is trying to make. And so if we are going to say that the Solomon's breadth of understanding is as measureless as the sand of the seashore, you can't put a limit on it as to what he knew. Solomon himself would also be the first to acknowledge this. And these are his words. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 2 and verse 6. The prophet Daniel confessed a similar truth. Under threat of the king, he was given the ultimate job to interpret the king's dream or die. No one could interpret whatever this dream was that the king had. And we read from Daniel's lips, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. And you have made known to us the dream of the king. Daniel 2, verse 20 and 23. This king was pretty sharp. He, um, he had wise men in his council. And um, he had this dream, and it was dark and dank. And he couldn't figure out the symbolism. So he asked his wise men to interpret the dream. And so the wise men said, um, well, okay, uh, tell us what the dream consists of, and we'll give you the interpretation. He said, no, no. <laughs> Anybody can do that. You'll just make it up and try to fool me. Here's what you're to do, wise men. Tell me the dream and give me the interpretation. And they said, oh, king, mister, oh, we love you, you know, but uh, none of us can do that. Well, Daniel was able to do both, give the dream and give the interpretation because the dream came from God. What this means on a practical level is that if something is truly wise, it supports rather than distracts from the word of God. Psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 160, all your words are true, all your righteous laws are eternal. Daniel was not wise in his own right. He wasn't saying that. Solomon was not wise in his own right. He never claimed that. No, these men were wise because they were filled with the wisdom that God alone gives. And no wonder we read in 1 Kings 10 verse 24, the whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. This is phenomenal. Remember the Queen of Sheba came and so forth. She wanted to hear she says, uh, boy, i got to go talk to this guy. What a reputation he has. His reputation precedes him. And off she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. 
This divine wisdom, since it is connected with God Almighty, the God who cannot and does not lie, must also paint life's portrait as it truly is in a sinful world. There can be no larger-than-life expose, no touch-ups to hide the blemishes that are obvious to all. And this is why Solomon appears to be cynical and harsh at times in his analysis. He's telling it like it is. Honest people want the truth, even if the truth hurts. So he tells the truth. Solomon let us see the truth through the eyes of a man full of the wisdom of God. And I think for that we should be eternally grateful. How this applies to fathers, when we talk about their role in a family, is evident. And so point two in our outline, you have it in your bulletin. Let's look at some of the windows into Solomon's research. First window that I want to share with all fathers today is this. Solomon says it's tough being the breadwinner of the household. It's tough being the breadwinner of the household. If ever there were a truth that's drummed into male children of a home, it is the truth that someday you're going to get married. Someday you're going to have children of your own. Boy, I heard that from my mom and dad many times. You're going to have a family on your own and thus a family for which you will be responsible to support. And we, even with all the chatter of the feminist movement about working women and career women and stay-at-home dads, it remains true in our culture and generally in the world that the husband, the dad, is held responsible to acquire gainful employment so he can support his wife and kids. Even in divorce, think about this. Fathers are what? They are assigned child support for any children resulting from the union. And if they don't do it, they're called deadbeat dads. And if they're discovered to be deadbeat dads, there's a legal process. They can't skip out on their families. It's a criminal offense not to support what the court has assigned you to do. But what about responsible dads? What does Solomon have to say about work in general? And how might his analysis contribute to grief for working husbands and dads? Look at our text, Ecclesiastes 2. We're looking at verses 17 and following. Now here he's being, he's being very honest, so get this. So I hated life. <laughs> Solomon says, I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is, it's meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he's going to have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. Oh, this too is meaningless. Ecclesiastes 2, 17 and following. I think the first phrase here is quite revealing. He says, I hated life because the work that is done was grievous. 
Life and work go together, but for this working father there is grief because the future for his family is uncertain. Well, what's uncertain about it? He tells us. I hated all the things I had toiled for because, here's the uncertainty, I must leave them to one who comes after me. Who knows whether he will be wise man or a fool. Yet, he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort. Now you think he's thinking good. He says, I'm gonna, I got all this money, but I have to leave it to somebody. And the man, I think he's even thinking of his own sons. <laughs> the man might be a fool. He might be a fool. Yet, he's going to have control. He's going to have his hands on the purse strings. With our struggling economy in our day, there's a lot of talk among families, particularly fathers, about how well or how poorly their families will do in the future with the national debt now over $20 trillion. Fathers are wise to this. They know that... uh, This huge debt, they see it as something that will control the legacy and take it right out of the hands of their children, in effect, depleting their inheritance and financial security for which dad has worked and saved and toiled all of his life. So I never think about the national debt. Well, you should, because it's affecting your legacy, your inheritance to your kids. And as God's people, we are told not to worry, but Solomon, in his research, came to this position, verse 20, so my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun, for a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Now get this next phrase. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is meaningless. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 20 and following. Now I read that and I say, uh-huh. What could Solomon possibly know about work and grief? He mentions that here. Well, look at verse Four and following of chapter 2. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. So he's got all these servants in his house that he has to house and feed. How's he going to do that? I also own more herds and flocks 
than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desire. I refused my heart no pleasure. And then he says, my heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for all my labor. What he is telling us here is that he was a doer. He was not a talker. His wisdom was not absorbed in philosophical contemplations. And he wasn't simply living off the interests of his large sums of money from the bank. No, he was always planning, thinking of how to care for his 1,000 wives and their children. And to utilize his wealth in helpful projects that would benefit his estate and his kingdom. Reservoirs for the city of Jerusalem and so on. He was the Donald Trump of the ancient East. Billions and billions and billions worth it. His conclusion, verse 11. Yet, mm -mm, yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 4 and following. <laughs> I read that. Nothing was gained. Everything was meaningless. How's that? Because there was no certainty that these success stories would ever accrue to his family. I mean, his house steward might be a thief and rob his family of their inheritance. That happened with Ziba, you remember, Saul's steward, who hoodwinked Mephibosheth, Saul's son, of his inheritance. He stole the estate from him. So that could happen. Or his son might become a rogue who squanders the family inheritance on wine, women, and song. Remember that Esau did that. In our day, the investment portfolio might come up tilt, as it has for so many whose life savings were wiped out through crooked investment firms or banks or a vol volatile stock market, which is going well now and everybody's all excited, but it wasn't always that so. You can see that for conscientious fathers, just being the breadwinner of the family is enough. When these hard times downturn, however, they may bring grief and pain. What's the solution? Solomon tells us, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too I see is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom 
knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24 and following. Now, there it is. There it is. Happiness. And satisfaction in one's work is found in the believer whose eye is on God, not on the work itself. Paul says, slaves, we would think employees, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Colossians 3, verse 22 through 24. Solomon said that to the man who pleases the Lord, God gives happiness And Paul says that our work must be viewed first and foremost as serving the Lord. And that said, he will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. This explains the rest of Solomon's conclusion. He goes on to say, but to the sinner, God gives the task of gathering and storing wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. So that man whose fortune is lost to another is the sinner, not the believer, whose whole life is filled with worry and greed. Jesus tells us as believers, don't worry, saying, oh, what shall we eat? Oh, what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things, And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But you seek first his kingdom. There's the priority. Seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Matthew 6, verse 31 and following. He's telling us, here's your priority. Stop worrying like a pagan. Confidently trust in God as his child. He'll take care of you. So that's the first window. It has to do with material things. And Solomon had money to burn. They went after those things that would please God. He gives us a second window. And as it is, fathers hurt because their families live in dangerous Surroundings. Boy, is that indicative of our age or what? He says in Ecclesiastes 4, the first three verses, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil 
that is done under the sun. Here Solomon says something that is so very apropos for our day. He's he's talking about oppressors who seem to have free reign over the innocent and the defenseless. Some years back in the war in Syria, it was reported that Syrian soldiers went throughout Syria killing their own civilians for no other reason than that they were male in gender. So when they went into a town, they rounded up the men and they murdered them. Why would they do that? I mean, it's reminiscent of Pharaoh's dictum to the Hebrew midwives. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Exodus 1 verse 16. What's the rationale for that? Well, it's this. Such infanticide is that boy babies grow up to become soldiers. So we don't want that to happen. Leaving such men to live meant Egypt would be promoting an enemy army within, same as Syria, same within the Syrian male population. Already old enough to bear arms, kill them! We won't have to worry about an insurrection to oppose us. Protection of our families from harm is as much concern for fathers as bringing home the bacon. I can tell you as a father, that's true. The senseless acts of violence against our citizenry, the random acts of violence, the lack of any connective motive between victim and oppressor, the lack of compassion for women and children bring a lot of grief to conscientious fathers. Didn't we just have it in the news about the Baptist church in Texas? Guy went in there and just killed people. For, for what? For what reason? It didn't matter whether they were babies or little kids, right on up to the senior citizens that were there. They, he shot. I was telling the guys this morning, it was on the news, the church has finally decided, well, we're not going to try to renovate this building. The walls are all shot full of holes. There's blood everywhere on the carpet. We're just going to raise the building, and we have to build new. That's how bloody... That's how terrible the scene is in that Texas church. So as fathers, we take protection and preservation seriously, maybe even obsessing a little bit and becoming paranoid about the dangers that might be lurking in the dark. What's the solution? Solomon says, like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked man ruling over helpless people. A tyrannical ruler lacks judgment, but he who hates ill-gotten gain will enjoy a long life. He whose walk is blameless is kept safe, but he whose ways are perverse will suddenly fall. Proverbs 28, verse 15 and following. Or again, what the wicked dreads will overtake him. What the righteous desire will be granted. When the storm is swept by, the wicked are gone. But the righteous stand firm forever. Proverbs 10, verse 24. 
Solomon's father, David, phrased it this way. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you, God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Psalm 23. Yes, even David the king had enemies that would gladly have taken his life and on many occasions tried to do so. Jesus, David's son, and yet David's Lord, prayed this for you and yours. I will remain in the world no longer, praise Jesus. But they, and he's referring to his disciples, but they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was in with them, I protected them. I kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. That's Judas. So that the scriptures would be fulfilled. John 17, verse 11, 12. Did you know that Christ prayed for your protection, your safety? And he prayed to God that he would do that. This does not mean that we do not take reasonable precautions how we conduct ourselves in a hostile world. We do not walk in the streets of northern Flint at night. We do not take back roads home when returning from shopping at the malls. We install motion lights over the drive. We put secure locks and deadbolts on our doors. But, but, we do not become prisoners in our own house and hostages in our own country. We do what is reasonable, efficient, and within our power, but we do not become paranoid about all that could happen, believing that it will happen. The psalmist puts it this way. I love this. It's in Psalm 44. The psalmist says, I do not trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long. And we will praise your name forever. Selah. Think about that, says the psalmist. That's Psalm 44, verses 6 through 8. The boy, the boy, David, answered the taunt of Goliath in this way. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you Philistines into our hands. 1 Samuel 17, verse 47. And you know 
what history declares. So fathers hurt when their families live in a dangerous community. And I like to say that we don't worry about those things, but we sometimes do. And then thirdly, fathers hurt when contemplating that their own children, their own flesh and blood, might deny God. I think this was part of the anguish which just kind of tore at David's heart in the death of his rebellious son Absalom, which we studied last week. Let me read it for you. The king was shaken. He had just heard that Absalom had been killed in the battle. The king was shaken. He went up to his room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. 2 Samuel 18, verse 33. And I don't even think the words help us to see the anguish of his heart. Think about this. Absalom had attempted a coup against David, his father. He had fornicated with David's concubines to insult him and to show his spite. He tried to kill David. Yet, with all that animosity in Absalom, David grieves for his lost son, and he says it this way, I wish it would have been me. Why would he say it that way? Well, I'm guessing, but I think it was this. I, David, know the Lord. If it had been me, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But Absalom, no, I know. That was not so with him. And that is an anguish and grief that penetrated his soul. Men are generally not as demonstrative as women, but it does not mean that we have no feelings on these matters. Christian fathers in particular have the spiritual goal of seeing every one of their sons, every one of their daughters come to know God through Christ the Savior. But let me say we must do more than want it. We must do more than desire it. How are people brought to a knowledge of God as Savior? Where do most conversions occur? What are the means by which people repent and believe? Oh, we could list such things as, oh, well, a gospel tract. Maybe they were handed that along the street corner. How about, about a Bible reading from the Gideon Bible that's found in the drawer of most motel rooms? How about the witness of a friend? Or maybe somebody would give them a video or an audio tape to look at or to hear. But you know, all of these things combined pale in comparison to what Paul teaches as the theological principle of evangelism, which is this. I'll read it for you from Paul. Consequently, says Paul, Faith comes, this is saving faith now, faith comes 
from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Romans 10, verse 17. Preaching. People hearing the message. Faith is the gift of God. That's true. Ephesians 2.8 says so. But this gift is not dispensed in a vacuum. It is given in and as a result of gospel preaching. Paul writes it this way. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Well, that makes sense. And how can they hear without someone Preaching to them, Romans 10, verse 14. Or again, he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. Gospel preaching has fallen out of fashion these days. And so we're not seeing revival in our America. We're not seeing it in our country. People don't go to evangelistic services. They don't go to church. If they do go to church, they go to feel-good places where the gospel is not preached, where they're patted on the back, when they're told how wonderful and good they are. Now understand, it isn't the preacher that is important. It isn't the church building that is important. It is the message of Christ, crucified, risen, coming again, blessed by the Holy Spirit, preached without compromise. And yes, content is everything. Paul puts it this way, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we did preach to you, let that person be eternally cursed or condemned. Galatians 1 verse 8. And then he says it again. Galatians 1 verse 9. It's like, oh, you didn't hear it the first time? Let me say it a second time. Holy Spirit presence is everything. The Bible says, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints, marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Hebrews 4, verse 12. And in Ephesians 6, verse 17, Paul says that God's preached word is, in Paul's words, the sword of the spirit. That's how he gets into your heart and mind through the preached word of God. How can we as fathers be concerned that our children come to repentance and faith and then, and then, not have them exposed regularly, consistently to the preaching of the gospel whenever we can? By all means, pray for your kids. But be doers of God's word, not hearers only. Place them within earshot of the sword of the Spirit that he might bring conviction and repentance and faith to the lost of your family. 
Oh, and if, you're, if perchance your children already know the Lord, then set the example of loving God yourself through your fidelity to gospel proclamation by which we are all made holy. Set the example, because I've heard time and time again from kids saying to their parents something to this effect, well, you don't go to church, why should I? You know, back in the 50s, I did live back then. <laughs> back in the 50s, it was not unusual, and I was in a Baptist church back then, it was not unusual to see parents drive up in their cars, stop in the street, now this is in front of the church, open the doors and let their kids out to come to Sunday school and church, and then they'd close the doors and drive off. And then at 11.30, 11.45, you'd see those same cars coming back to pick their kids up, and on the way, then they would go home. They brought their kids to church to drop them off. They didn't attend the services with their kids. They were saying to their children, eh, church and God is, is for kids and children. But we adults, we've got other things to do. I've got to mow the lawn this afternoon. I've got to do a little bit of grocery shopping while you're in church. And this happened time and time again. I wish I could say, and I knew these kids. I grew up with these kids, and they became teenagers. And so I wish I could say that they came to know the Lord. But as soon as they were teens, as soon as they were in high school, as soon as they were 17, 18, we never saw the kids anymore. Never heard of them being converted to Christ and coming to Christ. Why? Because mom and dad taught them that. That's why. They taught them. When you become an adult, you don't have to go to church anymore. You don't have to learn about the things of God. Now you're a grown-up, and grown-ups don't need God. What a sad commentary we have put on our society at times. Oh, Lord. Forgive us. Heavenly Father, help us to be better parents. Help us to be better teens and children. Help us to have in our hearts and in our minds a taste for, a hunger for, a love for the word of God. We will not learn of God any other way. Yeah, I can go out in the woods and sit among the trees and watch the chipmunks and say a prayer. And nature does have some things to say about the creative power of God. But if I really want to know God as Savior and Lord, i got to be under exposure to the preached Word of God. i got to learn about Jesus Christ from the book. I have to learn about the Holy Spirit and His work in people's hearts. I have to learn about sin. I have to learn about repentance and faith and trust and giving up my selfishness. I have to learn about coming and being dependent to being a disciple of Jesus. And I'm not going to learn that from nature sitting in the woods. I'll only learn it from exposure to the preached and taught word of God. Lord, help us to see that. In many ways, Solomon tells us the wonderful things that he learned. But he concludes the book of Ecclesiastes starting out where he began saying, All is meaningless. All is meaningless. Chasing after the wind. Why? Because all of his wealth and all of the wisdom he had in the various disciplines of life meant nothing. His conclusion was to love and fear God. 
That's what took him. That's what's going to take him to glory. Not his money, not his wealth, not his importance, not any of his positions, but to know God. Did Solomon really know God? Oh, yes, he did. His sins were forgiven. Say, how do we know? We find him in the book of Hebrews in the by faith chapter. We wouldn't otherwise know that. We have these wonderful books written by him and written in such a marvelous, frank, sometimes harsh way. It sounds on our heart, beats on our brains because he just tells it like it is. I hope that your spirit, Lord, will tell it like it is to our hearts. Show us our need and then show us the solution found in Christ in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. From the Brown Hymnal, our closing hymn is 269, 269. Let's stand again as we sing, O Word of God Incarnate. Now this is talking about Christ as the living word. You can learn from the Bible, that's the written word, but in the Bible we hear about this person who's the living word. And if you study the Gospels, you get to study the living word and the Christ that's there. Let's sing together.
a wonderful thing that God has preserved the book for us. I mean, there are centuries of torment and persecution in which they burn Bibles in piles. They didn't want people to get a copy of the scriptures in their own language. Rome did this many, many times. Days of Martin Luther and others. A lot of persecution because they wanted to get the word of God out to people. What? how privileged we are. I have so many Bibles at my house, I must have a 12 or more Bibles sitting on shelves. This translation, that translation, and so on and so forth. You probably have them too. Or you wore them out and bought a new one. There are places yet still in America and in the world where no one has yet heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe your own family. You need to be praying about that. Tonight at 6 o'clock, we meet downstairs for studies in the Gospel of John. We start chapter 16 tonight. We have finger foods. Everybody eats, enjoys physical food, and we learn from the Word of God, enjoy spiritual food. See you at 6. Thank mm-hmm. you.